Well, everybody, we are back at EarthX in Dallas, Texas at Fair Park. And uh, today we are fortunate to be at the Women's Museum and participating in EarthX military, believe it or not. Uh, there's a special day of discussions with incredible speakers uh, talking about the military's role in environmental protection and climate, particularly. Uh, we uh, are very fortunate to have with us today uh, William Parker, Dr. Parker, who is the president and the CEO of the national, let's see, the national, help me out, let's see, the National Defense University Foundation in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dr. Parker, uh, thank you for being on the American Shoreline podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, tell us a little bit about the National Defense uh, University uh, Foundation and what that organization seeks to do, first of all. Sure. Well, the National Defense University, there are uh, five colleges, four of which are uh, on Fort McNair in Washington, D.C., uh, one of which is at the Joint Forces Staff College down in Norfolk, Virginia. And the overall purpose of the university is to train not only U.S. Uh, senior military uh, up to and including one through four-star generals, uh, but also our international friends and allies. So we have over 100 of our friends and allies that are here right now. Many of those go on to be heads of government or heads of their military. Uh, in addition to that, what the foundation does is it bridges the gap uh, both financially and reputationally between what it is that the that the government, the taxpayers can can cover and what needs to be covered. For example, we are standing up and establishing a climate chair. Um, and that climate chair is going to be uh, uh, there uh, to instruct uh, senior leaderships on the impact of the environment uh, uh, as as it as it uh, impacts. Uh, combat operations, but also as it impacts uh, the environment and our, uh, our our animals uh, that are in the sea at the same time. No kidding. So what we have here is a upper level training for senior uh, military officers in the United States military, but militaries around the world. Uh, and interesting. Yeah, I appreciate that. So in this level of training uh, in discussion, you have a specific uh, agenda specific uh, chair. What does that mean that you have established an environmental impact uh, a study program? Well, tell us about that. Right. So we're we're establishing that chair now. We're in the, we're in the process of it. Uh, and and like everything else that the foundation does, we raise funds to do that. Okay. Uh, we've raised funds for the Colin Powell chair, which we do, which looks at uh, leadership and geostrategic vision. And this climate chair that we are uh, in the process of establishing uh, will will train senior officers on what the impact positive and negative impacts are of the military operating within the environment okay. and how we can take advantage of that climate when necessary as well. Why is that important that the, the United States military senior leadership understand climate and environmental issues? Why does that, why is that on the agenda for this senior level training? Well, it matters for a couple reasons. One, because we only have one environment. And so we're using that that, that environment that we all live on and operate in uh, to ensure that we leave a, a better world or at least as good of a world for our children and our grandchildren. Um, so from a bigger perspective, beyond just war fighting, that's part of it. From the perspective of war fighting, you only need to look at a, uh, a, a situation like anti-submarine warfare. I'll use that example. Uh, you know, as, as salinity in the water is changing, as temperature of the water changes, it it directly impacts how we do anti-submarine warfare because we look at three variables, temperature, pressure, and salinity. So pressure isn't changing because the depth of the water will remain at about every uh, 35 feet, 33 feet. You get a, a change of one atmosphere. That's right. not changing. But the salinity of the water 
and the temperature is changing and so that changes how you're able to uh, detect submarines and we only need to go back and look at World War II to realize what a threat it was to the United States uh, when the Germans were basically sinking our ships before they ever got uh, to Europe. Indeed and so the acoustical signal is being modified by the change in the water chemistry differences in as you say salinity and temperature that and, the, and I I would imagine the acoustical arrays that the Navy uses are quite precise and are affected by even slight changes in these parameters and so understanding how the ocean uh, is is changing is an important military exercise is what I think you're suggesting no that's absolutely right yeah. and it's not just the oceans you know you can start looking at the at the atmosphere uh, and, and and sunspots and and how temperature uh, impacts the uh, the the the, uh, the bending of waves, mm-hmm. uh, which impacts how radars are used in the air as well as communications. So there's well, lots of that. Okay, you know I I I'm very curious, and I hope you don't mind. I really have been watching quite carefully what's happening up in the Arctic, particularly and. From a military and economic standpoint, uh, Russia has become quite assertive in the Arctic Circle, uh, both in terms of their military bases and I think uh, the uh, uh, what they're doing with uh, nuclear-powered icebreakers and getting ready to ch- shuttle uh, LNG across the Arctic Circle. Norway is quite active. Uh, Canada is doing military exercises up in the Arctic now. Uh, is the United States on top of this? Because I look in the in the news and I'm not seeing a whole lot about what the U.S. Uh, military is doing. How can you talk a little bit about that? I know this isn't quite what we're talking about, but it is an emerging part of the international sea story. Is what's happening in the Arctic? Well, it's it's a geostrategic issue, which is is very important. I will say that one uh, a very important change that we've seen in recent years is that we are no longer telling the rest of the world every time we change our strategy, uh, our tactics, or where we move ships and other assets. To. Okay. And I think that's a good thing. Right. Uh, whether we're paying attention to that, yes. Okay. Folks are paying very close attention to that. Okay. And uh, one of the specific issues I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Parker, is this discussion of the acoustics. And and you were speaking about in your remarks that the sound levels in the ocean are doubling every 10 years. That's a phenomenal fact. Tell us about that. Yeah, that, well, that's exactly right. And, and uh, as an example, right now you have about 65,000 large container ships around the world that are operating today. 65,000. That's wow. a lot of ships. Yeah. Um, it, it, compare that to the United States Navy. Uh, 30 years ago, we had 600 ships. On an average day, we had 100 ships underway 30 years ago. Today, we have 289 ships. On an average day, we have 100 ships underway. That's and odd. so when you look at it, the fact that our, the number of ships has dropped by half, more than half, and yet we're still operating at the same levels, it answers your earlier question, too, of why it is that maybe you don't see as many ships as you do in the Arctic that you would like to, or as many ships in, in certain areas. Well, the reality is we only have 100 ships that can operate on a daily basis. Of course, you can bring that up. If something really bad happens, you can get the right. very vast majority of those ships underway. But you do need to bring them back to uh, to train, equip, and, and, uh, and, and, and put new equipment on board. So that, that's what's happening there. Acoustically-wise, mm-hmm. I'll bring up one example for yeah. you. There are whales in the water today that as when they were born goods and services were moved around the globe by sailing vessels that is a stunning thing think about this yeah that's really amazing today you've got 
a thousand plus foot ships that are doing 35 knots across the ocean, taking a hundred thousand tons of stuff from point A to point B. The sound has significantly changed the environment within which with uh, within they they operate. And that. That fact, and I think you're quite right, international shipping is a massive industry. We're starting to see these very large cruise carriers coming into U.S. ports for now that we're an oil exporting nation, which are 1,000 feet long and uh, a million tons of oil. I mean, these are massive, massive vessels. when we, when we start to see that intensity in shipping and sound associated with that, uh, that don't, I assume that that has both a military implication, but it also has an environmental implication. Is in the command schools that you're working on, and is this something that is discussed? What does it, uh, what does it mean for the, for the uh, whales and other acoustic animals that are in the sea? I, you mentioned fisheries even. Tell us what it, th- what it does. Sure. Well, l- let's look at this from a couple perspectives if we could. Number one, over 90% of all goods and services around the globe are moved on the seas every day. Mm -hmm. And so that's where most of your goods and services are moved. So if you can have a positive impact on quieting the oceans, it helps not only the fish and not only the the whales that are trying to communicate with each other, um, which is obviously a very good thing, but it also has a positive impact on national security and on the economy. And and I say this because if there's a way to quiet down those ships and to make them more efficient, you're burning less fossil fuels, uh, which is is good economically for the shipping companies. It's also good for the recipients. And at the same time, it makes the oceans quieter. So that's a win-win. If you can make the oceans quieter, it's also easier for the U.S. Navy and others to track both ships and submarines out there because there's less of that environmental noise. Makes perfect sense. It's actually win-win-win economically, uh, more fuel efficiency on the commercial shipping side, environmentally beneficial, better for the U.S. military at the same time the U.S. Navy. Uh, It sounds like a great strategy. How the hell, if you don't mind me saying, how the hell do you do that? Because if there are 65,000 ships moving up and down the and across the oceans of the world, how does this problem get tackled? Yeah, so, so the way you don't answer it is by saying you're going to change the hull forms of, of ships. The reality is most okay. of the ships out there will be in operation for 30 to 50 years. They're very expensive vessels, and so you're not going to say, I'm going to change all of those next week. You're not going to do that. But what you can do is apply certain technologies that would reduce the cavitation, and that's the major sound that you're getting, is cavitation from the screws as they turn and you have multiple bubbles popping and you can reduce that sound in a very in, in, in a variable ways uh, different ways to do that okay. and also in the sound that's emanating directly from the engines the motors the equipment into the hull of the or into the uh, water itself through the hull so if you have something that can act as a sponge or something that uh, absorbs some of that sound before it gets to the hull of the ship then it makes it quieter as well. Okay, I, that makes sense. So maybe it's about propeller design, which is a piece of the ship we, we could probably get a handle on, but not necessarily the whole design and any of that kind of thing. Uh, and maybe how the equipment on the ship is is attached, buffered, baffled, uh, insulated, that kind of thing. Right, and then there's the other part of, of operations. On average, the average container ship that comes across uh, to the United States from Pacific or the Atlantic weights 
before they can actually offer their goods for two to three days. Yeah. It would make a lot of sense if instead of them racing across the ocean and waiting two or three days, we become more efficient so that they drive slower, meaning it's a lot quieter. There's a lot less cavitation of the screws. They're burning less fuel on the way across, which means it's it's better Again, economically for the company, uh, it's better for the, the fish in the environment because the cavitation is reduced significantly. And quite frankly, it's better for national security because there's less of that noise that we have to work our way through to figure right. out who the good guys and the bad guys are. That seems too sensible right. to avoid. I mean, that is really a great idea. And we do see this in, at the Port of Houston. If you're down in Galveston, Texas, and you'll see uh, tankers lined up out in the Gulf of Mexico at night, you can see them, of course, better with the lights. But there will be dozens uh, that are waiting there. The, the channel widths now, uh, the, the Houston Ship Channel entrance needs to be doubled. So there's one-way traffic. And all of this stuff on the timing and the shipping, it seems to me that would be in everyone's interest to get a better handle on that. Right. Right. And then and then you can also look at the point of if you say well, every hundred days, I don't know what the number is, but every hundred days, there's going to be some kind of minor leak, whether it's lubrication oil or oil or something from a ship. Let's just say it's every hundred days. I don't know what the number is. OK. OK. And you're going to spend two and a half or three days of that hundred in the littorals on each side well then the probability of of dumping large amounts of oil or something else bad into the environment that's close to our shores is much higher than if they just came in unloaded and left got the heck out right there's all kinds of great reasons there let me turn the conversation a little bit to one of the things that we've heard about and read about on the American seashore and and around around the country. Out on the West Coast, a lot of debate going on right now about the uh, United States Navy's sonar training exercises and the impact on the migration of gray whales and I think blue whales up and down uh, the Pacific Coast, particularly uh, near Catalina Island in the Catalina Channel. and uh, it seems like they're working through that issue. Uh, can you talk about the naval, the naval training implications of, of acoustic training and what that requires the Navy to do and uh, how the Navy is trying to respond to that? Sure. Um, so, so a couple of things. Number one is uh, anti-submarine warfare is a very important part of, of what the U.S. Navy does. At the end of the day, if you have one aircraft carrier, you have 5,000 of America's sons and daughters on board yep. that aircraft carrier, and you need to make sure they remain safe. That is very important. But from an environmental perspective, we are just uh, uh, having the fifth anniversary of Stewardships of the Sea, which is a huge project uh, in the tens of millions of dollars that the U.S. Navy spends every year to Hmm. find ways to better protect our environment and then share that with other countries. As an example, I was talking to some some people that are here at EarthX a little bit earlier that are from the Ukraine. And when I took uh, my destroyer into uh, Ukraine up in the Black Sea, I embarked a three-star admiral, a Ukrainian three-star admiral. It came on board, and we talked about all those ways that we were trying to protect the environment and sharing those with him. And we did that around the globe as we did things like the Great Green Fleet, as we brought in LED lighting and and took out the other lighting, et cetera. So these are all possibilities. So not Mm. only are we doing it for our own fleet, but we're training the rest of the world or sharing with them, and they're sharing with us too. So we learn a lot from other fleets as well. Fantastic. And I think what I was 
was impressed by is the Navy's effort on 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 plastic recovery and recycling and reuse. And I think people don't know this about the United States Navy, but all the plastic that is used on board is re retained on board, compressed on board, and then used to make, as you said, parks and playgrounds and and used on the bases. And that's an a pretty a, a great example, leading by example for other industries around, around the yeah, country. Yeah, I mean, really, the United States Navy puts nothing in the water anymore except for clean water. And the water they put in the water is cleaner than the water they take out of the ocean in the first place because they have oily water waste systems that when when it, it's sucked in, they'll clean all that up. And before they send it out, it's drinkable water before it's mm -hmm. pumped back over the side again. Similarly, we use reverse osmosis now, which means that the water's coming in. We're pulling the salinity out of there. We don't have to heat the water up anymore, so you're not adding adding heat to the environment. Uh, so it, it's, it's a win-win situation. And for the sailor, uh, it means that they have fresh water all the time. When I first came in the Navy 30-plus years ago, uh, we did what was called Navy showers because you had very limited amount of water. So you turn the water on, get wet, turn it off, soap up, yeah. turn the water on, rinse off, and that was it. Now, um, a little better. Uh, well, let me tell you, the water stays on for a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> because you can now with the osmosis system. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing that is interesting to me about the military and listening to the other speakers at, at, at EarthX Military is the sensitivity and the understanding of, of how the environmental a changes associated with climate change are security issues for the United States on a national security level and have significant operational impacts on the U.S. military, both in the Navy, in the Marine Corps, in the United States Air Force. And it's funny, people don't know this, that the, some of the most forward thinking in on climate change in the world is in the United States military. And I think that's kind of a surprise to a lot of people. I, I think it is a surprise, but you, know, you kind of understand that a little bit. I mean, understand that less than one half of one percent of the population of the United States serves in the U.S. military. So when you get right down to it, if you have 200 people in the room, one of them may right. have, have served on active duty. And so it's a very small number to start with. Great. And, and, and so when you look at the threats at Norfolk, and I asked this question to the former secretary of the Air Force who was, who was speaking uh, on the panel uh, about the potential relocation of bases, and she reminded me of the political uh, desire not for those things to happen and how as met, that might be an interesting idea, but the politics in the United States don't really allow for the closure of these facilities and the relocation well, so it's, it's easily. Well, it's interesting. I was talking to a congressman a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and I said, what do you think of BRAC? And he said, well, BRAC is the sound that a, uh, mm -hmm. you know, BRAC, BRAC is the base realignment and closure yes. system. And he said, BRAC is the sound that a, a cat makes when it coughs up a hairball. Uh, he didn't want to <laughs> that's go beyond part. that. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, it, it what it means is in, in bases like in Norfolk or Eglin or in Camp Lejeune, where I worked right across uh, on Topsail Island in North Topsail Beach, right across from Camp Lejeune, uh, which is the Marine Expeditionary Forces uh, Deployment Center. I mean, huge. These are huge facilities. The, the investment that the United States is going to have to make to harden these uh, facilities so that they can withstand whatever storm impacts they face or sea level rise and uh, it's it's a big ticket item, isn't it, for the United States military? It really is, and, and it's being uh, undertaken in two ways. One, how do you prevent it? Um, so how do you reduce carbon emissions? How do you reduce those other things? We're, we're, we're talking about that. And then on the other side, how do you make those bases more resilient? Right. Um, and whether that's through uh, hurricanes or, uh, or just high winds or whatever it is, um, how do you make them more resilient? And both of those are being looked at and shared with the local communities as well. Right. 
Well, it's great to see the United States military at EarthX and uh, all of the folks here talking about the importance of uh, the health of the environment, particularly we're interested in what the Navy's doing because we're very interested in the American coastline. So uh, Dr. Parker from the National Defense University Foundation in Washington, D.C., the CEO and president of that organization, thank you very much for taking the time on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Mountains.